This is Theology for Teens with Nathan Lavallee. Thank you for joining me today. We have a daunting task before us. Let me explain that. Last night, I was teaching to my youth group on the same thing I'm about to teach to you guys on, and I realized something. These concepts we're about to cover are not something that are easy to understand the first time you're exposed to them. As I taught these things to the students, they had this look on their face at first, like, what are you talking about? And as I explained them in multiple different ways with lots of different examples, it was like popcorn. Oh, I get it. And it was throughout the room. Some got it after a few examples. Others, it wasn't until the very end of my teaching that they were like, oh, I'm starting to understand. So let me explain what that means. The pacing of this episode is going to be different. I'm going to try to leave more pauses, some more silence, so that you can think through the implications and the connections of what I'm saying. In addition to that, give yourself some patience and grace, because I genuinely think these topics are a little bit difficult to understand. Some of them are intuitive, but others of them, you really have to think through in multiple different ways and find the examples that make sense to you before they really click. When I was studying this in order to teach it, I reflect back and I remember reading things multiple times before I really grasped the concepts myself. And now that I'm teaching this, I'm at a place where I understand these ideas pretty well. And I want to get you to that place too, but it's going to take some time. So stick with this video today. It may not make sense perfectly at first, and that's okay. Now, a little personal thing, I just need to tell you this because it's affecting me. This is my third time trying to record this episode. The first time, I didn't think I did a good job of explaining the concepts in a simple and easy to understand way. The second time, I thought I did pretty good. And when I dragged the video into my editing software, I realized it had no audio. Yeah. So that's my life. This is like my 20th time after those two trying to get this right. I feel a little flabbergasted, but I want to push through and get this content out to you. And maybe I'll be able to explain it even better this third time. So here we go. Let's dive into it. Let me tell you the outline. We're covering three laws of logic today. There's nine in total. These are technically called the laws of propositional logic. We're going to kind of toss aside the propositional. You can just think of these as the nine laws of logic. I want you to know propositional in case you want to look into this more. That's how you'd find these online. These three laws we're covering are called modus ponens, modus tollens, and hypothetical syllogism. But there's a problem in that these names are really hard to remember, and they don't make any sense. Now, they made sense in the original language that people were doing this logic and developing these. There was a firm connection between these words and what was happening with the logical rules. But we don't really have that connection uh, with, with these original names to what's happening logically. So I've thought about what's the simplest way to teach these laws to students. And I think the simplest way is just to refer to them as law one, two, and three. I'll put in the description below the actual names of these laws. So if you ever want to dig more into this, you can search this word, these law names on Google, and you can find these things. But we're going to be covering law one, two, and three. I'm modifying some different ways about how logic is done as far as the symbols and, uh, and, and how it looks when you write it down on paper that hopefully will make this more intuitive and simple for a student to understand, but still just as powerful. So I've gotten that out of the way. We're covering the first three laws of logic here today. 
So let's get straight into this with law number one. I'm going to go through all three laws with the same example. Now, there's an interesting thing about this example that kind of came out last night. It can be very easy to move from one area that's helpful to another area that's unhelpful. The helpful area is where we're just thinking about whether these arguments are logically valid. In other words, if the premises are true, the conclusion will be true as well. That's logically valid. As humans, we very quickly jump to evaluating, is this sound? In other words, are the premises true? There's exceptions to these premises that we're going to talk about. You have to kind of forget that, okay? If you have an engineer mind and you're really good at seeing the exceptions to things, this might be a little bit more difficult, okay? So for this example, we need to assume that premise one and two are true. Law one goes like this. If I study hard for the test, then I will get an A on the test. That's premise number one. It's an if-then statement. If blank, then blank. Premise one. Again, we're not arguing whether this premise is true. We're assuming it's true. It's a premise. For the sake of knowing whether this is logically valid and building these connections, we need to assume this is true. If I study hard for the test, I will get an A on the test. So think this is a class where you know that this is the case. It's not going to be a ridiculously hard test, but if you don't study, you will fail it. Premise number two, we assert the first part, the if of the if-then statement. We say, I studied hard for the test. And if those two premises are true, then we can derive a conclusion from that. And this is the first law of logic. We can conclude that we will get an A on the test. So we notate this now. And instead of just using the full phrases of what we're asserting in the premises, we're going to take those phrases and we're going to substitute in symbols. I recommend substituting in the letters of the alphabet, starting with A and then going to B. And then if you have a third thing you're doing, go to C. And if you have a fourth thing, go to D. For this, we only need two. We need A and B. And so as we notate this, we're going to say if A then B. That's premise one. And we're going we're gonna to show that by going A with an arrow, a little arrow pointing over to the B. That's premise one. Premise two, we're just going to say A. We're asserting that. That's the premise. And then finally, our conclusion is B. If premise one, A arrow B is true, and premise two, A is true, then we can resultantly know that B is true. This is law number one. And I'll give you another example because we need lots. If I tickle my son, he will laugh. My son's very ticklish. Well, I did tickle my son. That's premise two. What's the result? What will happen? If those two premises are true, then what will happen is my son will laugh. This is law number one. Law number two is similar, and we're going to build on some of these same building blocks. We're using an if-then statement again. If A, then B. And we'll use the same exact example. If I study hard for the test, then I will get an A on the test. Now we are going to, instead of asserting A, we're going to assert not B. And this is symbolized with a negative sign and a B. 
That's how we're going to do this in this series. So premise one is if A, then B. Premise two is not B. From that, the second law of logic tells us we can conclude logically not A. So let me explain that with the example. If I study hard for the test, then I will get an A on the test. We're asserting that's true. I didn't get an A on the test. So what does that mean? Well, if A and B are true, then it means I didn't study hard for the test. I'll give you the other example with tickling because I think this maybe is a little bit more connected for some people. If I tickle my son, then he will laugh. My son isn't laughing. So what's the result of that? I'm not tickling him. Now, of course, remember, it's easy to flip into this mode of evaluating the premises for evidence. Is it actually true that if you tickle your son, he will laugh every time? Well, if he's asleep, maybe he won't notice it, you know, or if he's really, really mad, maybe it won't be something he'll actually... Okay, don't go there. Right now, we're just assuming the premises to be true and looking at the conclusion that follows from the premises being true. Remember, part of the work we're going to be doing is building arguments and then providing evidence for why we think the premises are true. And that's going to lead us to reasonably well knowing whether or not something is true and being able to break apart an argument to know if it's true or false. So that's law number two. With law number two, we assert if A then B, then we assert not B, and that concludes with not A. So we've covered the first two laws. Law three is in some ways easy to understand. Law three is the chain law, okay? You can kind of think of it that way. So in notation form, it'll go like this. If A, then B. Premise one. Premise two. If B, then C. If both of those premises are true, what's our result that we know? The conclusion is if A, then C. Let me show you this another way. If my wife is taller, well, let, okay, let's forget the if then. I'm just going to show you this with another example that's not an if then. So let's say my wife is taller than my kids. Okay, great. Let's say that I am taller than my wife. Is it ever possible then, for you know, right now, is it possible that my kids are taller than me? Well, no, because I'm taller than the thing that's taller than them. This is like law three. We're building things together. And you could go all the way down to Z. You could have an argument that is 26 premises long and ends up resulting in if A, then Z. Of course, if any one of those premises is untrue, you know, let's say, uh, uh, it, like if O, then P, like if that's untrue, then the whole thing falls apart. But we can build this long argument that leads all the way to Z from A. And then if those are all true, then if A, then Z is true. And, and we can make this complicated chain. This is law three. Let me show you what this looks like with the studying example. Remember, the first two premises we are assuming is true for the sake of understanding this. Premise one, if I study hard for the test, then I will get an A on the test. Premise two, if I get an A on the test, then my parents will be proud of me. We can conclude from that. If those are true, then if I study hard for the test, then my parents will be proud of me. 
great. This is law number three. Now, I could go a little bit further, and I could say, uh, not further, but a different example. If I tickle my son, then he will laugh. If my son laughs, then I will smile. When my son laughs, I usually smile. And then from that, if those are true, I can conclude that if I tickle my son, then I will smile. So if I want to tickle my son, I can smile. Or if I want to smile, I can tickle my son to to do that. So I'm building this argument that goes from one thing to one thing and then from that thing to another thing. This is law number three. Now, I have another way of showing you and depicting these laws that I think is really helpful. And I'm going to shout out Chad, one of my youth volunteers. He had this example. He brought it in after I taught, and I think it was really helpful. So I'm going to steal this. He gave me permission. Right here in my hands, I am holding two large shapes. I have a large octagon, very large. It's bigger than a dinner plate. And I also have a circle. It's about the size of a cup holder. I have that circle laid on top of this octagon. And the circle is labeled A. And the octagon is labeled B. Is that the right way? Yeah, B. An if-then statement, right? these logical forms, can be depicted as a smaller shape being within a bigger shape. Now, for this, forget the actual shape of the shape. It could just be any random shape. The point is that when we build an if-then statement, what we're saying is if smaller shape, then bigger shape. So in other words, if you're located within this smaller shape, then that means you're going to be located within this bigger shape. Okay? If you're A, then you are in B. Now, of course, whether or not the premise is valid is going to depend on whether or not A is actually within B. So if A is over here, it would be invalid to say if A, then B. That's what we do when we evaluate the evidence for a premise. We're trying to determine, is this actually inside this other thing? And we depict that in our language with an if-then statement. If you study hard on the test, then you will get a good grade on the test. Well, you didn't get a good grade on the test, so you're not inside this big hexagon. You're over here. And we know that if you're not inside the big hexagon, you are not inside the little circle. This illustration of shapes within shapes is really helpful. And you could build this out and do a bigger shape and a bigger shape and a bigger shape and get all the way to Z. And you could look at how things fit within things and that thing fits within things. It's like dolls. Have you ever played with dolls? that fit inside of each other. It's just like that. The smallest doll fits within the biggest one. And when we make if-then statements, when we do logic, when we make arguments, it's like fitting shapes within shapes, but with reason, with words. That's what's happening here. Now, this example of the shapes is going to be really, really helpful, really, really important when we look at the fallacies involved with each of these laws, which we're going to do now. Let me put this up on the screen here. Uh, Again, you can follow along on the podcast. It's going to be easier to follow along in the YouTube video, especially for this episode, because I'm going to have these diagrams up on the screen. So I'd recommend um, this might be a good episode to hop over to YouTube if you can dedicate your eyes and your ears. So three common fallacies with 
these first three laws. I want you aware of these because they can sound convincing. Now, a fallacy is an incorrect way of thinking about something. It's fallacious if it contains incorrect ways of thinking about things. Specifically, there are conclusions that we can derive. These are the laws. But there's also incorrect conclusions we can derive that kind of seem true at first glance. These are the fallacies. We want to make sure that we don't have fallacies as we're doing construction with logic and we're doing argumentation. So here's the common fallacies. There's really three, broadly speaking. Uh, There's two, but a chain, we'll we'll get there. Fallacy number one is a front-side fallacy. And that fallacy is concerned with the if in the if-then statement. We'll talk about that in a moment. The backside fallacy is concerned with the then in the if-then statement, the back part of that statement. And it incorrectly asserts something that cannot be used to derive a conclusion. Okay, It says something wrong and then tries to, from that, conclude something wrong. The chain fallacy is just like the front side and back side fallacy, but instead of A to B, you know, we're A to C now because we've built a chain. And again, the front side chain fallacy would be something that messes with the if, which would be the A, and the back side would mess with the C, which is the then of the if-then statement. Let me show you what I mean by this. We'll start with the front side fallacy because I think this is the easiest one to understand. Front side fallacy would be notated like this. If A, then B. Not A, therefore not B. This does not work. It can kind of sound like it works, though. When you're doing an if-then statement, saying not A does not conclude not B. I'll show you this with the shape. We have right here a shape within a shape. Again, we have our big hexagon and we have our small circle. Okay, If I say if A, then B, this is what that would look like. The small circle overlaid on top of the, the, the octagon. I almost said hexagon. This has eight sides. The small circle on top of the octagon. I wonder if I've almost said hexagon before. Anyways, if A, then B. And then I assert not A. So I'm not here. I'm somewhere outside of here. Well, can I be outside of A and still be inside of B? Yes. 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 Look at all these places I can touch. I can put my whole hand inside B and not be inside A. This is the front side fallacy. Instead of asserting, you know, premise one is if A, then B. And then I say, A, look, I'm in A. That means I'm in B. Look, under A is B. I'm doing something different. And I'm going, if A, then B. Well, I'm not A. I'm over here. So that must mean not B. No, not B is further even than not A. Okay? That's the front side fallacy. Now, interestingly, I'm going to show you these fallacies with a different example. And I think the example that's going to be really good is using phones because I think youth understand intuitively how phones work. So we're going to utilize this example. We're going to talk about it, and then I'm going to bring in the spiritual example that I have on the screen, and I'll explain that too. So the simple example is this. Premise one, if my phone battery runs out right now, then my phone will not work. That's premise number one. 
We intuitively know this is the case. If your phone is on 1% battery and it drops to zero and it flips off and it gives you the power symbol, shuts down, your phone will not work now. You're going to have to charge it before it will work. So this is premise one. If my phone battery runs out right now, then my phone will not work. On the front side fallacy, we go not A. So we say, well, my phone battery didn't run out. And the incorrect conclusion from that would be not B. In other words, my phone is working because in this case, B is my phone will not work. Saying not B is kind of like a double negative, which is a positive now. My phone will work. So because my battery didn't run out, that means my phone will work. What's the problem with this? When we have a really intuitive example like this, it's easy to spot the problem. Your phone battery could be charged, but your phone at the bottom of a lake and you can't use it and it doesn't work. Water's gotten in. Your battery could be fully charged, but your phone screen just got smashed by a hammer. Your phone battery could be fully charged, but as you were taking a picture of the Grand Canyon, you went ahead and dropped it off the side of the Grand Canyon and it fell to the bottom and it screamed the whole way and it hit the ground and was destroyed. And that battery is still down there, fully charged, but your phone is not in working condition. You see how we can't conclude that just because the battery is depleted and not charged, that the phone will not work for that reason. It doesn't work. Now, we, or I said that wrong. We can't assume that because the battery is full, that the phone will work. We know that if the battery isn't full, in other words, A, we know that if that's the case, then the phone, uh, if, if, it, if it isn't full, that the phone won't work. We know that. But if the battery is full, that doesn't mean the phone will work. So notate it out with symbols instead of statements. We're saying, for premise one, if A, then B. For premise two, not A. For premise three, which is our conclusion, it's not a premise actually, it's our conclusion, we would assert not B, and that would be the front side fallacy. Now again, I've made these names up because I think they tie in well and they're simpler. You won't be able to find this if you search front side fallacy um, unless this gains a lot of traction. So that's the simple example of the front side fallacy. Instead of asserting A for your if-then statement of AB, you assert not A, and that does not work. I'll use the tickle example again. If I tickle my son, then he will laugh. Well, I didn't tickle my son, so he didn't laugh. Doesn't work. You can't do that. It's a logical fallacy. And when we do a spiritual example, it's easy to see how this can hide in plain sight. And if someone says this with a lot of confidence, they can sound like they really know what they're talking about and convince you that they're actually correct when, in fact, it's fallacious. It's a fallacy. Let me show you. I'm going to say it confidently, okay? I'll go quick and then I'll break it apart. If the Bible is true, then Jesus is God. The Bible isn't true, though, so Jesus is not God. Did you catch the front side fallacy there? Again, the notation of what I just said is if A, then B, not A, so not B. But that doesn't follow. That doesn't work. And so in the example, if the Bible is true, then Jesus is God, that may be the case. And then I'm going to assert, well, the Bible isn't true. Look, I have these other examples of places where the Bible is false. You know, I have five examples, difficult passages. You can't explain them to me. No one can. Um, and 
you know, I'm not saying I, I agree with that, but someone might assert that. That's very common. And then this person from that maybe concludes, well, okay, then it's rational to believe that Jesus is not God. But that doesn't work. It's a fallacy. You can't derive not B from not A when your first premise is if A, then B. So, front side fallacy. It's easy to miss. So, we'll pause for a second. We need to get good at hearing arguments and writing down the notation of those arguments. We need to get good at being able to put in the symbols in the premises so that we can actually break apart, is this a logically valid argument? Let's move on to the backside fallacy, which is similar, but instead of messing with the A, we're messing with the B here. Now recall in law two, we go if A then B, then we go not B, and that concludes not A. And that is logically valid. It's law number two. Good. Okay. But here in the backside fallacy, instead of asserting not B, we assert B. And then we try to conclude A. But that does not work. It is not logically valid. Let me show you with the simple example. I'm going to read it quick because I think that helps it um, intuitively make more sense. If my phone battery runs out right now, then my phone will not work. My phone doesn't work, therefore my battery just ran out. Can you conclude that? No. With a really simple example like this, it intuitively makes sense that this cannot be concluded from what we just said. It's a logical fallacy, right? There's lots of reasons my phone could not work. We've already talked about this. It could be at the bottom of a lake. It could be smashed. I could not have cell reception, and uh, and that could affect things as well. So we can't conclude A from B. We'd have to conclude not A from not B. So in a spiritual example, this can look difficult to spot. Again, let me show you this example. I'll say it quickly so, so it really binds together uh, in your mind. If Christians are hateful, then the non-believers they interact with will reject the gospel. And for you, every non-believer you've interacted with has rejected the gospel. Therefore, you are being hateful. Does that sound logically valid to you? Before we break it apart and look at the symbols and the notation, is this logically valid? Does it sound true? Because I've heard people assert this. You know, it's only, and it can be said a lot of different ways, but in this form, um, you know, if you're hateful, then every non-believer you interact with is, is not going to come to the gospel. Have you interacted with any non-believers who have come to the gospel? Maybe it's posed as a question, but really it's a statement. And the implication of the statement is, well, then you're a hateful person. You don't really know what love is. You may think you're being loving, but it's not real love. This is a fallacy. You cannot conclude A from B. This is a backside fallacy, right? And so when we notate the backside fallacy, it looks like this. If A, then B. B. Therefore, A. But it doesn't work. So we need to get good, again, at hearing arguments and breaking them apart into their premises, notating them with symbols so that we can understand, is this logically valid? Once we know an argument's logically valid, we can start evaluating the premises. But we're wasting a lot of time if we start evaluating the premises before we 
actually check if the argument is valid. So we need to know the laws before we can really dive into evaluating arguments and premises. So for example, here, if someone were to assert this, you know, uh, if, if a Christian is hateful, then the, belie- the non-believers they talk to are not going to come to God. How many believers have you talked to who have, who have come to God? None? You know, you might feel the need to start attacking the, the premise. Well, no, no, I've talked to, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of non-believers, and uh, yet yeah, none of them have come to God, but like, is that really, a t- it's logically invalid. Don't get stuck there. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. Whether or not believers I've interacted with have rejected the gospel or not, it doesn't follow that I'm hateful. You know, you're saying if A, then B, and then you're trying to assert B, and that it doesn't work like that. A better litmus test, and if we were to do this logically, we'd say if someone is hateful, then the non-believers they interact with will reject the gospel. And look, non-believers I've interacted with have not rejected the gospel, not B. Therefore, I am not hateful. That would be logically valid. Of course, we'd have to assess the premises even still. So this is the backside fallacy. Let me get out the shapes. I want to kind of show you these two fallacies with the shapes here. So I have my circle and my hexagon again. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and zoom out on the camera and go full screen so you can see this. So we have A and B. A is located inside of B. So the fallacy for the front side would go like this. If A, then B. Well, not A. So we're outside of A, like maybe here. And then we would try to assert not B. The problem is if you are outside of A, that does not mean that you are outside of B. Now, if you're inside A, that does mean you're inside of B. Okay? So that's the front side fallacy. The backside fallacy starts the same way. If A, then B. Great, A is inside of B. And we're going to assert, well, we are inside B, so that must mean we're inside A. But in fact, you could be inside B and not be anywhere close to being inside A. It does not necessarily follow that you're inside A. Now, of course, you could be inside B and A also be where you are. But that does not necessarily follow. And that's the important point here. Now, we're going to go ahead and move on um, to the chain fallacy. And real quick, I'm going to respond. My wife is wondering if she is, uh, if, if we're done. We're almost done, I sent her. So we're going to do this last thing here. This is the chain fallacy. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here. The chain fallacy is the same as the front side and back side. So if you've tracked with those, you should be able to track with this. Instead of just going from A to B, we go all the way from A to B to C. And likewise, when we do this, this is law three, we get from A to C now, the same fallacies apply. You can't say not A and get to not C, and you can't say C to get to A. So I'll give you the example with the battery running out. If my phone battery runs out right now, then my phone will not work. If my phone will not work, then I can't receive the call I'm expecting. If my phone battery runs out right now, then I can't receive the the call I'm expecting. So we've derived that from law three. Great, we have if A, then C. The front side fallacy would go, well, my phone battery didn't run out right now, therefore I can receive the call I'm expecting. So we've done not A, not C. But that doesn't follow. You might be in the wilderness where you have no cell service and you can't receive the call right now. You may have just lost your arms 
and you can't press the button to receive the call right. You you could be unconscious. You could be sleeping, right? There's all kinds of things where not being an A, well, you still might be in C. The backside fallacy, on the other hand, is going to assert C. So remember, if A, then C was this. If my phone battery runs out right now, then I can't receive the call I'm expecting. So we're going to assert C. I can't receive the call I'm expecting. Does it conclude that A, my phone battery just ran out? No, it doesn't. You can't conclude A from C when we have if A, then C. You can only conclude not A from not C. Which, which law would that be? Law number two. You can't conclude not C from not A. You can only conclude C from A. Which law would that be? Law one. Hopefully this is starting to make sense and click in your head. If not, you may have to rewatch some of this or, or give some examples, which we're going to do at the end. I'm going to give you some examples. We're on to the spiritual example of the chain fallacy. Let me show you this. I'm going to read through it fairly quickly on front side, and then I'll read through it quickly for, for back side, and we'll talk. So if the Bible says don't drink alcohol, then that's God saying don't drink alcohol. If God says don't drink alcohol, then you should not drink alcohol. Then we're going to conclude if A, then C. If the Bible says don't drink alcohol, then you should not drink alcohol. Great. So at this point, we haven't done any fallacies. Now, whether or not the premises are true is neither here nor there. The fallacy is going to be in the logic of it, not in the validity of the, the premises. So then we move on. Let's see the front side fallacy. So we just had if A, then C. If the Bible says don't drink alcohol, then you should not drink alcohol. Front side, we would say the Bible doesn't say don't drink alcohol. And now we're going to try to conclude not C. Remember, C was already negative. You should not drink alcohol. So not C would be the double negative, which is going to be positive. So we would try to conclude from the Bible doesn't say don't drink alcohol, you should drink alcohol. You see the silliness of that? Just because the Bible doesn't say don't do this thing doesn't mean you should do that thing. Hopefully it's evident that this is a logical fallacy. This is the chain fallacy, specifically the front side chain fallacy, right? The backside chain fallacy goes like this. We're going to start from the third part. If the Bible says don't drink alcohol, then you should not drink alcohol. Okay, so we've got there. Now we have our backside, and we're going to assert C. You should not drink alcohol. And we could do this with campaigns about drinking and driving. We could talk about the effects it has on families, about how what percentage of people who drink end up becoming drunks. Uh, I mean, we could talk about a lot of things to convince. You should not drink alcohol. And then we would conclude, well, the Bible must say don't drink alcohol. So now, as we look at the Bible, we're going to force it to say that. A lot of people do this. This is a mistake in the interpretation of Scripture. Just because we have good reason to think you shouldn't do something doesn't mean that that reason is contained within the Bible. So we have a fallacy. This is the backside chain fallacy. Now, as we would notate this, we would go, if A, then B. If B, then C. We conclude, if A, then C. Great. Front side, we would go, not A, and then try to conclude, not C. Doesn't work. Backside fallacy, we would try to, to assert C, which is fine, but then when we try to conclude A, fallacy doesn't work. Backside chain fallacy. 
this is the, the third and final fallacy that we're looking at, it can be really easy for someone to confidently assert one of these fallacies we've examined and for it to sound kind of convincing. Maybe you're kind of like, something seems off with that. We need to get good at breaking down arguments and symbolizing the pieces of premises and that's going to help us to at least go, oh, okay, okay, your argument is logically valid, but do I agree with your premises? One seems fine, but two is broken. Like that, you are so wrong on two. Your whole argument falls apart. Yeah, it was a logically valid argument, but it's not a logically sound argument because this premise is invalid. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So we've covered the front side fallacy, the back side fallacy, how that applies to the chain. And now we're going to look at one final thing. And I have a funny story that's going to demonstrate a weird thing about the English language that you have to be aware of because you're going to encounter this. 1,000% you're going to encounter this. So let me tell you a story. Go full screen because this, this story is really funny. Okay, let's say there is a man who loves a woman. He really loves her. He's loved her his whole life, but she's not so into him. Maybe you've heard a story like this. Maybe you are a story like, like this. Okay, enough goofy. So he goes to her and he proposes, will you marry me? And she says, no, I won't. And he does this several more times. The final time he goes to her, he brings an entire mariachi band, okay? And there's cakes and fountains of chocolate and fireworks and he gets down on one knee. He says, will you marry me? And she's just sick of it. She doesn't want to marry him. And so her response is this, kind of joking, but also kind of serious. I will marry you only if you climb Mount Everest and don't die. I will marry you only if you climb Mount Everest and don't die. Now, imagine you're the man and you just heard this. You probably just heard, if I climb Mount Everest and don't die, then she will marry me. But I want you to notice, she didn't say that. She said, I will marry you only if you climb Mount Everest and don't die. This is tricky. When we hear only if, it can be tempting to make that the A. To make that the if in the if-then statement. But the English language is kind of funny. And when we have only if, that actually tells us that it's the then. And I'll show you with the shape. So here we have our big octagon. I wonder how many times I've said hexagon. We have our big octagon and uh, inside of it is our circle. Now, as the man, you might hear, if I climb Mount Everest and don't die, then she will marry me. But that's not what she said. She said the opposite. She said, I will only marry you. So, in other words, if I marry you, then you climbed Mount Everest and didn't die. If I marry you, then you climbed Mount Everest and didn't die. That's what is actually happening underneath the hood when someone says, only if. In other words... He might come back having climbed Mount Everest and not having died and her still not want to marry him. He could have climbed Mount Everest and not died, but he lost both his legs in the expedition 
And as a little girl, she always said, I never want to marry someone without legs. Now, I wouldn't have that view myself, but she's kind of superficial, let's just say. And she, she says that. And so he comes back, and now there's this new, you did the thing. Yeah, you meant the only if, but that doesn't mean you're here where I'm going to marry you. Also, he could have gone and, as he was climbing, met a tour guide and ended up marrying her. So it doesn't work to make the only if be the A or the if in the statement. We can't do that. Only if implies, and actually um, is it's implicit in saying only if, that that is the then. That is the second part of the if-then statement. Now, this is going to play into your conversations with atheists, and I'm going to show you how. You're going to be talking um, to atheists, and they might say something like this, okay? They might say, I will believe Christianity only if the Bible is completely and totally true. Okay, now pause. Do not hear this as them saying, if the Bible is completely and totally true, then I will become a Christian. They didn't say that. It sounded like they said that, but they didn't say that. I will become a Christian only if the Bible is completely and totally true. There could be other conditions. And so instead of starting to explain, here's my five-point case for why the Bible is completely and totally true, and then tell me your issues with it, and then I'm going to research all those, and I'm going to come back and tell you why those are actually true and not false. Don't get caught there. Don't get caught there. Instead, turn back to him. He asserted if A, then B. Return that and say, okay, well, if B, then A? Question mark, right? And so if someone were to say this to me, I will believe in Christianity only if the Bible is completely and totally true. Then I would respond and say, okay, well, if I could show you that the Bible was completely and totally true, would you be prepared to become a Christian today? I've had this conversation. Nine times out of ten, the answer is no. Nine times out of ten, what looks like a head issue, what looks like this academic question, what looks like a very genuine seeker, is actually just a cover and a disguise for what is a heart issue. And so even if you explain every facet of the Bible and its validity and the messianic prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled those, and and you brought in a book like Hard Sayings of the Bible, and you explained all of the difficult passages that they might have an issue with, at the end of the day, underneath all of that could just be a desire, a fleshly desire of the heart that is really what's keeping them away. Maybe they're about to go to college, and maybe they really want to party, and they want to drink, and they want to be part of the hookup culture. And so what they've done is they said, I'm not going to worship you, God. I'm not going to worship the creator and the savior. Instead, I'm going to worship my earthly and fleshly desires. I've made an active decision to follow myself as God for my religion. And they present this as an academic quest to know what's really true. And if you can just present these things as true, then I'll believe. But that's not what's usually happening underneath the surface. 
They say, I will believe in Christianity only if the Bible is completely and totally true. That's just part of it. Only if is not the if in the statement, it's the then. Okay? And so responding back, well, if I could convince you that the Bible is totally true, would you believe? And there's any number of topics that you could do this on. You know, someone might present, how could God let the Holocaust happen? I can't believe in a God who is evil and would let that happen. And then I could respond and I could say, okay, if I could show you that God's not evil and that despite the reality of the Holocaust, God is not implicated as being the evildoer here, would you worship God and follow him? They've said, if A, then B. And I've said, okay, well, if B, then A. And I've reframed that. And maybe they'll say, well, no, there's this other issue. Okay, well, if that other issue is, and you can go through boom, 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 and you get to the end of it, and maybe maybe they say, well, yeah, if all those were... So now I actually know that it's if B, if C, if D, if E, then A. Or maybe at the end of it, they go, well, no, actually, after all that, I still am not willing to submit. And so it's like, okay, what's going on in your heart? What's happening here? Tell me about it. So we have to watch out for only if. Let me review what we've talked about today. Hopefully, this has been helpful and it's made sense. I'm not sure that the third time was better than the second time. Let me review and then I'm going to give you some examples to practice on your own, okay? We've talked about the first three laws of logic called Law 1, Law 2, Law 3. I've explained those with a multitude of examples. And in addition, we've talked about fallacies connected to each of those laws, things that you could fall into doing if you're not careful. We have the front side fallacy that messes with the if. We have the backside fallacy, which messes with the then. And then we have the chain fallacy, which specifically does the same thing, but with a chain from A to B to C and to any number of letters. And after that, we talked about only if and how when someone says only if, it's tempting to think that that's the if, but that is actually the then. And so we're wise, instead of jumping into trying to answer the presenting question to respond and say, okay, well, if B, then A. If I can convince you that blank is true, would you really become a Christian? So we've looked at all of that. Hopefully that's been helpful for you guys. I'm going to go ahead and put something else up on the screen here. Let me enlarge this uh, so it's a little bit bigger. We're going to be looking at a couple different examples here. So I have three examples, and I want you to take these examples and see if you can notate them yourself. So remember, when we're notating, we're going A with an arrow sign to B for our if-then statement. And then anytime we get to a line that we only know to be true because of one of the laws of logic, make sure off to the side to, to say in parentheses, this is law two that has gotten us this conclusion, okay? So notate these if you're on YouTube. If you get all of these right in the comments, I will pin and I will heart your comment on this video. So I'd love to see if you can do this. We have three, two of them are fairly simple. One of them is challenging, okay? Here it is. Number one, this is three lines. If you like pineapples on pizza, then you have an objectively wrong flavor palette. 
if you have an objectively wrong flavor palette, then you can't be a taste tester. Therefore, if you like pineapples on pizza, then you can't be a taste tester. That's our first argument. Three lines. What law is being used? How do you notate this? Second argument. It's five lines. If God is all-powerful, then he can do anything he wants. Two. If God can't sin, then he can't do anything he wants. Three. God can't sin. We also have a citation of 1 John 3, 5 there. Therefore, four, God can't do anything he wants. And then five, which is therefore, if God can't do anything he wants, then he is not all-powerful. We can conclude also, God is not all-powerful. So here's another argument. Final argument is eight lines. This one's a little bit more challenging. Number one, if God is all good, then he wants to prevent evil. Number two, if God is all powerful, then he can prevent evil. Number three, God is all good. We conclude number four, God wants to prevent evil. Number five is a premise, God is all powerful. Number six, we conclude God can prevent evil. Number seven, if God wants to prevent evil and can prevent evil, then evil does not exist. That's a premise. And then finally we conclude, evil does not exist. Can you notate these? And can you put that in the comments below? I would love to see if you can do this. Guys, it's only by breaking up our arguments and actually thinking through and symbolizing these out that you are going to get good at identifying logical arguments and fallacious arguments. So please do not slack on this. Don't just click away to the next thing. Think through each of these examples. If you need to rewind, rewind it. I would love to see if you can do this. So that's going to be it for this episode of Theology for Teens. Thank you for tuning in. I am just crossing my fingers hoping the audio worked this time. Oh, thank you for writing with me. We're going to be doing a few more lessons that are going to be a little bit more technical with bringing you more laws. Guys, with just the three you've learned today, you already have such a high capacity to build and, and deconstruct arguments and know whether they're logically valid or not. So I hope that you see the power in what we're learning. Stick along for the ride. This is going to be so, so beneficial to you. Thanks for watching. I'll talk to you in the next one. This has been Theology for Teens with Nathan LaValle. Bye.